Uh, my name is Russell. I'm one of the church planting uh, residents here, and uh, we're going to keep going in our series, uh, Distracted, and we'll be talking today about the pull of perfectionism. But um, before uh, we get into that, I just want to invite you into um, praying. Jordan and Jessica, uh, as you know, went on sabbatical uh, last week, and uh, I just have on my calendar Monday mornings uh, to pray for them. And if you want to get out your phone or um, your reminders or whatever, and just put in there a, a, just, a, just a three to five minutes once a week um, to pray for them. And I'm just going to be praying for their ability to not be in a rush and uh, to slow down and to be present with one another for um, their marriage and their time together and their boys, and just that they would um, really enjoy just being and not doing. We love them, and so we want to be praying for them. And so I would invite you in to do that. And then um, today, uh, we're going to have two sort of scriptures that I'm going to be looking through, um, picking apart, and I hope that you really um, find um, some truth in in today for your own life. And so the two scriptures are going to come from Matthew chapter 5 and then Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, They'll both be on the screen here. And uh, here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and it is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much, and... I just would pray that your spirit would be in this place this morning that uh, we might hear from you and we might come face to face um, with our own faults or shortcomings and you might meet us with your truth and with your grace. And so, Father, um, give me words this morning. I feel inadequate to speak the truths of your scripture. And so fill me with your spirit that I might speak a word from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Jordan uh, asked me to preach this Sunday and that's actually not true because uh, when you're a church planting resident, Jordan told me to, to, that I was preaching this Sunday. <laughs> and I, I go and I look on the preaching calendar and I saw it. It said the pursuit of perfection. And I thought, how am I going to teach on that? I'm not a perfectionist at all. Like, and then I thought through it and I thought, okay, well, you know what? I'll teach the message, but it's not for me. Well, why did I think that? I scanned over my life and I thought, I'm really not a perfectionist. I'm getting my master's right now, and uh, I was writing a final paper a couple weeks ago, and I sat down to write the paper, and I thought, I really don't want to do this. What grade do I need to get on this paper? <laughs> and so, so I go in, and uh, these new programs are great. You can actually punch in your grades to see what the final will be, and I said, how can I get a C and pass this class, all right? And so I punched it in. I'm like, numbers, 60, oh, not... 50, too low. Okay, 52%. I just got to get a 52% on this paper. And I was like, all right. I wrote the paper. Word count was a little low, but figured I would only get docked a few points for that. And then I was like, man, should I read the whole thing? Nah, spell check. And so (laughs) I spell checked, turned it in, got an 80%, passed the class. Woohoo! All right. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not a perfectionist. And then I started scanning other areas of my life, right? And I thought about, okay, well, where, where maybe am I a perfectionist? I thought, well, you know, I love preaching. Uh, it, it, with preaching, I'll, I'll stay up late. I'll get up early. I don't really mind to really, like, ruminate over these ideas. And I'll smooth out my transi- transitions. I'll texturize my stories. And then all of a sudden, my whole Saturday is gone, and my priorities got out of whack, right? 
And so in this area, I was like, wow, I, I am a perfectionist. And what I hope to do today is walk through some different types of ideas around perfectionism. And um, what I'm trying to do is to get you to say, mm, that's, that's me. And so I hope that maybe as we would examine some of these things, you might find yourselves in uh, this pull of perfectionism. Because when perfectionism becomes our goal, it becomes the enemy of progress. This is the distraction that we have. It distracts us from taking the essential risks of moving forward in our life. Uh, Anne Lamont, I love how she writes on perfectionism in her book, Bird by Bird. She says this, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. Perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. The truth is that you will die anyway, and that a lot of people who aren't even looking at their feet are going to do it a whole lot better than you and have a lot more fun while they're doing it. Isn't that great? Perfectionism. It's the lie that if you and I don't make any mistakes, that we won't have to experience the guilt or the shame of our behavior. This is what perfectionism is. It's if I get everything just right, then I won't have to deal with the fallback. I won't be embarrassed. I won't be looked down upon. And I think for, for us, it really just manifests. I've been talking to a lot of people today and in the last couple of days. It really just manifests differently for all of us. And so I want to walk us through four different types of perfectionists. Uh, the first three are more outward, and then the last one is more inward. And as I go through them, um, you don't need to raise your hand, but maybe mentally you're like, yeah, that, that's me. And be, be aware of those and, and hang on to them. We're going to come back to them in a little bit. So uh, the first type of perfectionism, uh, number one is the performance perfectionist. A performance perfectionist senses that their value as a person is highly dependent on how they perform or how much they achieve. And so you might be a performance perfectionist if by trade you're an artist or a musician or a writer or an athlete, or if in your work you're just up front in, uh, in front of a lot of people often. And the idea behind this uh, for this person is, uh, I achieve, therefore I am. This person seeks to perform at a high level. Maybe they uh, desire to get into a prestigious college or uh, to be seen in a high-achieving job. And the drawback of this is uh, this type of perfectionism can lead to a lot of anxiety and depression as we do as people often fall short of our own standards and our own goals. And so you might be a performance perfectionist if um, it's hard for you to not work when you go on vacation or uh, if it's important for you to come across as a winner. You might be a performance perfectionist if you abuse caffeine or you struggle to slow down. Uh, you might be a performance perfectionist if, if when you walk off stage, you uh, ruminate over a mistake that you made over and over and over again. And I do want to give a, a bit of a caveat with this idea. This doesn't mean that the work that you're doing itself always needs to be um, perfect. It's more about um, the external and outward appearance of this idea. As I was sort of walking through these ideas of perfectionism, and, and specifically this idea of performance perfectionism, as, as, I've, I've, as I understood it, I thought, I do have some of those tendencies. I thought, where, where do these come from? Like, wh where do these behaviors, uh, are they innate? Are they learned along the way? And wh where do these types of behaviors come from? And I remembered uh, a story. When I was 13 years old, um, my dad, he was always working on things around the house, and he was always saying, Russ, come out and work with me on this. And I said, okay, fine. And so we would work on uh, his car, the, the brakes, the radiator, changing oil, whatever, or he would have me clean the pool or whatever it was. And I, I would have been about 13 at this time. And uh, my dad, he kept calling me 50. 
he said, hey, 50, come help me with this. And after a while, I was like, my dad doesn't know who 50 Cent is. And so there's like, there's no way. And I don't really look like him. And so I was like, why does he keep calling me 50? And so I finally asked him, like, dad, why do you keep calling me 50? And he says, 50, like 50%. That's, that's how you do things. You do them halfway. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, that hurts, man. Even as I say it. My dad, if you're watching this dad, he's definitely not. If you're watching this dad, we're going to talk. Um, no, I don't, it hurt, right? And I think it began to, to push me. I, I think it began to push me in healthy ways and in unhealthy ways. And I don't, uh, looking back, I don't think my dad meant for that, that idea to, to really linger with me. But I think some of our tendencies, even around something like perfectionism, are, uh, are, they come from old tapes, they come from old tapes that we've been playing in the background of our mind over and over and over again. And for you, it, it may be just like me, something a parent said, maybe something a boyfriend or a girlfriend said in the past, or maybe something that happened to you at school, but these tapes, they play over and over again on repeat in our mind, and they're subtly at work, and they're reminding us that sometimes we don't have what it takes, and it drives us, it pushes us. And I think that's one type of perfectionism, performance perfectionism. Second is um, the appearance perfectionist. And the motto here is, I am how I look. And as I was writing this, I'm like, man, I hate to admit that I'm an appearance perfectionist. And, and to defend myself on a healthy day, I think that, it, that I want to put forth the idea of excellence, right? But also on an unhealthy day, it uh, is, is a way of appearing that I have things together when I don't. And I think... These, these two are things that are either learned or maybe innate along the way. When I was a kid, my parents loved to tell this story. Um, when I was a kid, I would have been in kindergarten, first grade, something like that. Before I went to bed, I would go put my shoes on. It was the weirdest thing. I, I, would, I would go into the bedroom. My parents would say, go to bed, Russell. I said, great. I would go lace up my high-top chucks. I would pull up the covers, and I would go to sleep. So weird, right? And I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly why I did this, but... I wanted to be ready for the next day. I got up the next morning and I was ready to go. I was, I, was, I was dressed and I was ready to conquer the day. And I don't think, I know it's weird, I don't think there's anything wrong with being presentable, but to be aware, why, why do I do this? Like you, you might be an appearance perfectionist if when you're going to the gym, you do your hair and makeup, you know, or you get ready for the gym. Please someone tell me they get ready for the gym. Just one person. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was like, I can't be alone. Like, my wife's like, aren't you going to the gym? And I'm like, yeah, I am, you know. <laughs> it's horrible. You might be an appearance perfectionist um, if you spend an inordinate amount of time and money on your hair or clothes, or you um, really curate your Instagram. You can't just post something. You've got to, like, spend time to make sure that filter is just right, all right? So that's a, the, the second type of perfectionism. Uh, third type, an interpersonal perfectionist. Now, this is a bit misleading, so, let, so hang with me here for a second. An interpersonal perfectionist has a very set idea about the ways in which things should be done in relationships. An interpersonal perfectionist wants to appear relationally without any flaws. They want people to believe that they have the perfect life, uh, that they have no obvious errors in their life or any shortcomings. And so um, there's a buddy of mine, and we'll, we'll just call him Steve, and Steve really wants to get married. He... He, he wants to get married, but then every time I, I'm hanging with him, he's bringing a new girl along, and I'm so, I'm so confused. I'm like, I'll meet, I'll meet the girl that he brings, and I'm like, wow, she, she's great. You want to get married. What's, like, what's wrong here, you know? 
And I was talking to him recently, and he says, I, I don't know what happens. I get to a certain point of the relationship, and it's almost like they get too close to me. And I think what's happening with Steve is that he's scared that his flaws are going to be uncovered, and, and because of that, he retreats. He doesn't want anyone to get too close because they might see that he isn't quite perfect. And so you might be an interpersonal perfectionist if you share, share your flaws or share some vulnerabilities with people, but they're the only the surface ones. There's, there's a bunch of other stuff going on. Or you might be an interpersonal perfectionist if you are outwardly critical and demanding, and, and maybe you demand perfection from other people, when in reality, that's something you're wrestling with inside, but you're placing that burden on other people. And then lastly, um, probably the type of perfectionism that most, not, most of us think of when we think about perfectionism is a moral perfectionist. And a moral perfectionist might say, I behave, therefore I am. And the desire here is to get things right and to be righteous. And so the other day what I did is I was sort of putting all this content together as I was walking, I was talking to my wife and uh, her name's Katie and I said, Katie, uh, I, I explained it to her and I said, which one do you think you are? And she says, I'm a moral perfectionist. And I said, mm-hmm, yep, yep, you, 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 yeah, absolutely, that's great. And to my wife, uh, she sees the world as very black and white. There's, there's not a lot of gray in the middle. And on a good day, this allows her to stand up for those who have been wronged. In fact, she has a, like a very deep sense of justice. Just a couple weeks ago, we were in Hell's Kitchen going to dinner with some friends, and we were standing outside the restaurant waiting for some other people. It was Katie, myself, and then a, a friend of ours, and we're just standing out there, and there was a car parked in the middle of the street. And we see this van just like blazing down the road and all of a sudden he comes up and he swerves around the car but what he doesn't see is that there's a guy on a city bike coming right in between them and he runs the guy on the city bike right off the road and the guy, I don't know how he got out unscathed, he gets thrown off of his bike onto the ground, throws the bike between his legs and all of a sudden my wife takes off. I was like, where's she going? She's gonna go get that van is what she's doing. No joke. I, I, I look up, and my wife has checked on the guy, and that van has stopped at the red light, and my wife is knocking on their window. I was like, you get them, girl. I don't know. And so they roll their window down, and I can hear her. And she's like, did you see what you just did? You knocked that guy off his bike. You need to go check and see if he's okay. Get out of your car. It's like, my friend is looking at me. I'm like, that's my wife, man. That's my wife. And, and literally, that's the standard by which she thinks through. But that's a moral perfectionist. But there, there's, a, there's, a, um, a, there's a deep sense of right and wrong, but there's a dark side um, to, to that type of personality as well. Um, a moral perfectionist needs to be careful not to judge other people by only their standard of what is right and wrong. And so you might be a, a moral perfectionist if you really beat yourself up when you make mistakes or you feel like you're trying harder than other people to do things correctly. Or you might be a moral perfectionist if you don't like when people break the rules. Like at Whole Foods, you know, my wife gets mad when someone has 20 things in the line, uh, uh, the express line with 15. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay, all right? Because it's usually me. <laughs> so, Sorry. So, so those are the four types uh, of, of perfectionists, and, and maybe, maybe you're even beginning to see yourself in there, the, the performance perfectionist, the appearance perfectionist, the interpersonal, and the moral perfectionist. Did you find anything about yourself in there? And, and, and if you did, what I want you to do is just hold on to it. Even if maybe you're, you're wrestling with it, maybe even if you're saying, you know what, I, 
that might be true of me, but I don't, I don't really want to acknowledge it. Acknowledge it for a second and just, and just hold on to it because I want to go to what, what Jesus has to say about this and, and I want you to carry your idea with you. So here's what, here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five. He simply says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This text has, to be honest, really bothered me. It felt like what Jesus was saying is, is go fix yourself, go get things right, come to me, and then you can be more like me. And as you look at the greater context, Jesus is giving an ethical teaching. He is talking about things like telling the truth in, in oaths. He's talking about divorce and anger and lust and loving our enemies. And then he concludes by saying, be perfect. And I think, man, Jesus, you, you just raised the bar, and I just don't seem to really match up to what you're saying. I don't, I don't really uh, meet that. And it's a bit misleading in one sense because this, I, this word perfect here uh, in, in the Greek, it, it means uh, completeness or wholeness. And so it could almost read, you therefore must be complete as your heavenly father is complete. But still, I'm like, I, I don't always feel that way. I, and I still, if, if I'm honest, I, I do feel as though I need to convince the world that I'm not as messed up as I really am. And intuitively, we know we're not perfect. No one, if I asked you to raise your hand, if you were perfect, no one would do it, right? But there's something in us still that wants and needs to feel and be seen as perfect. We want to curate the perfect social media persona. We want the perfect resume, the perfect relationship, the perfect job, the perfect body type. And even in a spiritual life, we want the perfect spirituality. But what if instead of feeling shame about this desire that we have for perfection, what if we took a step back and said, is there a valid reason that I'm drawn to this idea of perfection? Maybe you've heard the phrase, um, to err is human, uh, to forgive is divine. To err is human, to forgive is divine. What if this idea to err is, is human. What if this idea is wrong? What if to err isn't human? Like, what if what we were created for was actually to live in a perfect world? If you go back to the garden, you look at Adam and Eve existing in the garden, what, what does it say about them? It says they were naked and they felt no shame. Why? Because they were perfect people living in a perfect world before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so maybe the reason we can't stand the imperfection in our life is because we were actually not created for it. We were created for perfection. I got one person that agrees with me. I'm just going to keep going. All right? <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that's the case, though, for us. We can't bear the idea of imperfection because we weren't created for it. And so how do we move away from it? How do we take steps away from it? How do we shift our focus from the pull of perfection and the first one is this. I want to give you three, three movements that we can make. The first one is from hiding to vulnerability. And the global church is in desperate need of this idea of vulnerability. When we look at each ways uh, of these, imperfe these perfections and th these drives that we have, each one of them is actually a form of hiding. There's a desire to be seen or perceived as something that we're not. And this is uh, regardless of, of if it's external or if it's internal. We're putting up a, a mask or a face and to show people. But there's a lot happening underneath. Brene Brown, uh, she writes, this is great. She says, if perfectionism is driving, shame is riding shotgun, and fear is the annoying backseat driver. And so perfectionism is maybe what we see, but there's stuff going on underneath. It's sort of like an iceberg. Um, I, I know uh, when you look at one, and I know there's a lot around here. Um, that was good. But 
If you look at an iceberg, what, what you're seeing is about 10% of what's actually there. 90% of the iceberg is, is underneath. And I think the perfectionism, it, a lot of times, is the same way. What you're seeing is perfectionism, but, but what's underneath? And it's, it's almost like the story I, I shared with my dad, uh, that drive that I showed you, that I, that I have, is, is to show people something that I'm not. But what's underneath there is rejection or stress or guilt or insecurity or loneliness or depression. What I'm projecting is different than what's happening underneath. And so the movement that I think we need to make, especially in our spiritual life, is from hiding to vulnerability. And the Bible doesn't, the Bible is really brilliant that it doesn't, um, when you read it, it doesn't try to cover up the flaws of of the many heroes uh, of the Bible. If, If you look into um, different stories in the Old Testament and even in the New, you, you quickly find imperfections and, and flaws. One of my favorites to read about is, is David in the Old Testament. David is sometimes in the Bible called a, a man after God's own heart, and which is really interesting because if you look at the narrative of David's life, you'd say, wow, that guy can be a man after God's own heart. And then you begin to put together uh, the prayers of David in the psalm, and I think that you begin to see why he is a man after God's own heart. If you look at the narrative, um, the life of David in, in 2 Samuel, I was, I was kind of flipping through it this week as I was working on this, and you find his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. You see the cover-up murder of her husband. Uh, some people don't understand this, but David actually had eight wives, 21 children, and, and he's really, as you, read the, as you read the narrative, he's really not a good father. And so I, I looked at this this week and I thought, wow, David is hiding. He's hiding behind all of these behaviors, and his life is a mess. In fact, he's just like this big ball of ambiguity. And I think why the Bible tries to show us the imperfections of its characters is because um, God knows as we read them, we can more clearly recognize our own as we read them. And what David is in, in the scriptures is he is hiding, but in the Psalms we find him become vulnerable. In the Psalms, you see every emotion. You see praise and joy and questioning doubt and victimization and lament and pain. You see all of these things. And David is this imperfect person, and he's talking to a perfect God about where he's at. Listen to this in, in Psalm chapter 6. He says, I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Here's a man, a man who's just at the end of his rope. His Casper mattress is like filled, flooded with tears, and he's broken. What is he doing? He's, he's shifting from hiding to vulnerability. Psalm 38, verses 3 through 5, there's no health in my bones. And so there's like this internal mess in him. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because my foolishness. I'm a fool I'm, I'm, I'm wrong, and I'm just saying, God, I, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. These are, a, these are prayers of a man who doesn't have it all together. They're prayers prayed out of shame and sorrow, and it's raw. Do you ever pray like this? I mean, I, I look at this and I say, man, I want that type of authenticity. I want to be that truthful with my vulnerabilities, but it's difficult. I was with a few friends uh, this week, uh, longtime friends of mine, and uh, we were together for about three days, and it took, 
It took probably 36 to 48 hours to get to the real stuff. The first day was just filled with sort of catching up, just talking about the surface stuff, how you doing, what's going on, what's new. 36, 48 hours in, it was like, how you doing, man? Like, what, what's going on with you? How, how are things going at work? And that was an opportunity to really move from hiding to, to vulnerability. And let me just ask you, when is the last time someone saw the real you? When's the last time somebody saw the you behind the curated Instagram post? When's the last time someone saw the you that wasn't talking about work? When's the last time someone saw the real you in your role, not as a mom? When's the last time someone saw behind all that? And I think as we ask these questions, as we begin to explore these, what we find is we, we all in some ways do need to move from hiding to vulnerability. And that may mean a, a phone call this week. It may mean grabbing coffee with a friend, but it's a shift that we need that will pull us away from this idea of perfectionism. So the first one is from hiding to vulnerability. The next one is from internal to external. And I think that this is a shift that we need to make in, in two ways, from internal to others, because we're selfish and we forget to think about other people, but also it's an internal shift that we need to make internally and then towards God. And so let me talk about from internal to, to others, and then I'll talk about the other one. One of perfectionism's dangers is actually in its self-orientation. Perfectionism is a pride. It's a fear-based compulsion that drives us to obsessively think about ourselves. If we're projecting out an image towards other people, what are we constantly doing? We're constantly thinking about ourselves, right? And so the shift that we need to make is from internally to thinking about other people. And I think what's important about this idea is a lot of times when, when we're wrestling with perfection, we're, we're wearing masks, we're, put, we're putting on a show for other people, one of the things that we um, un undoubtedly are doing is we have a standard by which we live and we project that onto other people. And sometimes it's not spoken. So we say, I'm expecting you to do this and to live this way. And the problem with that is we're, the, the real problem with it is that it's exhausting for both parties, but we're not allowing that person to be themselves. And when we stop expecting other people to be perfect, we can like them simply for who they are and for who they were created to be. There's another way that we do this, though. It's not only a shift that we need to make from ourselves to other people, but um, we, we do the same thing with God. It was interesting. Uh, Jordan's been using this Hebrews chapter 12 text uh, throughout this ser distracted series. And a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, sitting where you are, and he was going through Hebrews chapter 12. And um, I, I, I thought to myself, wow, what if the writer of Hebrews is actually giving us something um, prescriptive? He's prescribing something to us, and he's not trying to describe something. Let me show you what I'm saying here. In Hebrews chapter 12, here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then it says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And so it's a, it's a beautiful verse, but what if instead of the writer trying to describe something, he's actually telling us something to do. He's giving us an action step in order to live out. And I think that's what he's doing in verse 2. Verse 2 begins by saying, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
And I think sometimes what we do in our faith is we're wrestling with something and we're so consumed with it, we're trying to fix it internally. And the message sort of becomes, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps so I can figure this out on my own. But let me, let me show you. I want to show you a little chart here. And, and uh, I built this, um, and you can insert any idea here. So if you're in the back, I'm sorry, it's a little bit small. But let's work on this hypothesis for a second. You're starting with yourself, all right? That's the left side. What have I done? So I put, I put a sin in there. Well, I lusted, okay? And so... Uh, if you work on this hypothesis, you begin by, what have I done? Okay, well, I've lusted. Well, what does that say about me? Who am I? Well, I'm a sinner. I'm dirty. I'm undisciplined. Okay, because of that, what has God done? God judged me. God, God left me to fail. Well, then who is God? God is cruel and unloving. What happened? I started with myself, right? But the writer of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, look, look to Jesus first. And so let's, start, let's go the other way. Who's God? God is kind, right? We know, we know this. We read the scriptures. God, God is gracious. He's loving. This is who he is. Well, what has God done? God sent his son Jesus to, to redeem and renew all things. Okay. Well, who am I because of that? Well, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by his grace, and I'm a beloved child of the Father. What have I done then? What do I do now? I run to the Father, and I turn from my ways. So I think what the writer of Hebrews is actually doing is he's trying to pull us out of ourselves. And he's saying, look to the author, look to the perfecter of our faith, look to the one who makes all things right first. And then the pathway of what you're struggling with will be completely different. And so three movements from the pull of perfection, from hiding to vulnerability, from internal to external, and then from achieving to receiving. One issue with perfectionism is this deep desire to achieve something, but the problem with this idea is we're trying to achieve something that we don't have to earn. Following Jesus isn't about achieving perfection, but it's actually about placing ourselves in a posture to receive it. And I love this idea of perfection, one, because I think that we were, we were created for it and we need to, to really have that as a base understanding, but also to realize that in this idea of perfection, it comes with some requirements on us. It requires us to put ourselves in a posture of receptivity, to say, God, I don't, I, I don't understand this all the time. I don't deserve this, but I'm going to accept this as a gift. And I don't need to spend, I don't, I don't feel the need to spend a bunch of time trying to convince you um, that, that uh, you're uh, a sinner or that you uh, make mistakes or makes flaws. I think we all know that. Romans 3, uh, Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And the reason I don't think that we, I need to take a bunch of time to do that is because you don't meet God's standards, but you don't need to be disappointed about that because you don't even make, meet your own standards, right? We don't even, make, we don't even meet our own standards. And so we, we come and we say, you know what? I, I am imperfect, and, and, and still that dichotomy exists with Matthew chapter 5, right? Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a gap there, right? God says, be perfect. I'm imperfect. I don't really understand what I'm supposed to do with this idea. But here's the deep truth for today. What God requires of you, Jesus Christ provides. What God requires of you, Jesus Christ provides. You don't have to achieve the perfection that Jesus is talking about, but you do receive it through him. Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, and I'll, I'll read this really slow. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, what, is, what does that do for us? Well, because of that, we can rest easy, right? We're safe. We're saved by God's grace, not by anything we have done or anything we can earn. And this is the key to understanding the freedom from per- per- perfection. You don't have to achieve it. You receive it. We're imperfect, but we put our imperfect mess on Jesus Christ, and he bears the weight of our imperfection. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is trying to communicate. So a couple months ago, I was sitting outside of uh, my favorite coffee shop uh, close to our apartment, and I was, uh, I was sitting with my daughter, and I had just got done bottle feeding her, and of course, I, I'm burping her outside this cafe, and she spits up all over me, and I'm wearing a gray shirt, and so it's like very prominent. And as I'm sitting there just kind of hanging out, this older lady, probably in her mid-80s, comes by, and um, she just starts talking to me. Her name is Theta, and she says, um, she's sharing her life story with me. She's telling me she grew up in Brooklyn, that she moved to the Upper West Side in the 90s, and she says, it's so great to see um, a man hanging out with his daughter out in the middle of the day, and she's just telling me all these stories, and um, and then she sort of turns, she goes, I, I really want you to know how special this is for me to just interact with you and, and to just, th- that you would listen and that we can just talk and um, this is really special for me. And I was like, oh, okay. And she, you know, I'm kind of like, all right, you know, like, all right, good, good moment, you know. Um, and um, she said, can I take your picture? I was like, weirdo, you know. And I was like, you know what, whatever, you can take our picture. And so um, she takes a picture of my daughter and I, a couple of them. I got like spit up on my shirt. And um, she says, okay, I'm going to print these out for you, and I'm going to leave them in the coffee shop for you, and you can pick them up. It's like, all right. So I didn't think anything of it. Two weeks later, I go into the coffee shop, and they're like, did you see the photos? I go in there every day. They like know me. And so I was like, they're like, did you see the photos? I said, no. I was like, what photos? They're like, the one the old lady took of you. I was like, oh, Theta, that's right. Do you guys want to see them? Okay. Theta is a great lady, but these are the worst photos of all time. <laughs> Look at the second one. Like, my daughter is beautiful. Oh, my gosh. I'm not kidding. When she t- I forgot to tell you. When she took her camera out, it was like a $30 point-and-shoot Walmart camera. I was like, this is going to be awesome. Hilarious, right? Horrible photographer. <laughs> I got the photos and I died laughing like you, but all I could see were the flaws. I, I looked at the photos, all I could see was the flaws. I was consumed, consumed, consumed with how things turned out, and Theta didn't see that moment like I did. She, she didn't see the moment like I did. She saw perfection and I saw imperfection, and I, and I think it's the same way. Be, because of what uh, Paul is communicating in 2 Corinthians 5.17, um, I think when God looks at you, uh, he sees perfection. And I think, um, I think God is like theta in that regard. He, he saw the most beautiful moment, um, and he loves you, and he cares about you, 